The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. We're going to be talking about a different kind of diet today, given Mike's expertise here. But my name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Michael Gamarin. Michael, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? Uh, and how much do you love to filter noise? <laughs> Hi, everyone. Nice to be here. Thank you, Michael, for inviting me on. As, as introduced, my name is Michael Gimmerin. A little bit of background on me. I work, have worked in Silicon Valley my entire professional career in information technology, really big web systems, infrastructure. And I decided a few years ago during the coronavirus pandemic to start sharing people this concept of an information diet to help them sort of separate signal from noise in their environments so they can make better decisions and have better outcomes. So I'm really glad and happy to share, you know, some of the things that I've learned with you guys today. I'm going to make the assumption that the whole world is way noisier today than it ever has been. And a lot of that's because of the ease with which people get information, social media, and of course, everyone having an opinion. They're citizen journalists as opposed to just somebody with an opinion. Do you have to be skeptical as a, as a human being to to properly filter things? I think the answer is yes. I think you do have to be skeptical. I think skepticism as a rhetorical device, right, as a learning device, is basically like, okay, I need to filter all the information that I get through some set of beliefs that I have. And, you know, candidly, most people do this automatically. They don't, they don't, they're not intentional about it. And as you mentioned, because there's a lot more information today than we've ever had, and sort of the apocryphal statistic that people quote, which I think is useful, is it's said that a week's worth of New York Times newspapers contain more information than someone was likely to come across in their entire lifetime prior to the 18th century. So if we think about the social structures that we're born into, our families, our schools, our communities and how they evolved to help us make sense of the world. And then contrast that with, like you mentioned, social media and just how much information there is, there's a pretty big conflict. And out of that comes a lot of opportunity. All right, so let's lay out the framework for the audience in terms of what an info diet is. Because the other thing about diets is that they tend to not last that long. Right, yeah. I think when you go on a regular diet, you start with a goal, right? I think 
if your goal is I want to lose weight, it's probably, like you said, not going to be sustainable. But if your goal is around an identity, I want to be a marathoner. I want to be able to go biking every weekend. Or even I don't want to fall down as an old person. There's going to be a different diet that you're going to need to adopt for each of these things. And I think when it comes to the internet and what we're doing in our lives, there's a very different diet that you need if you're going to be a political commentator or if you're going to be selling products off of Etsy or if you just want to be someone who's knowledgeable in your community about what's going on. And so I think just like with fitness and the diets that support different fitness outcomes, we really need to be critical of, well, what is it that I'm trying to get out of why I consume information? And I think because people don't actively ask this question, they get into trouble. Right. Well, I was thinking it's a function of information for purposes of entertainment, which means you don't care so much about the usefulness it has on your life. You just want something to to talk about and express a, a view on. Right. Yes, there's a whole component of that as well, right? We're social creatures. We like to be informed. And certainly there's a lot of money to be made in exploiting some of our cognitive biases like fear of missing out. When you look at the structure of the social media applications, they are built around engagement, which is basically, I'm going to pay the smartest people in the world millions of dollars to figure out how to get you addicted to content so that you're highly engaged and I can sell you advertising. And I think that even if we're, even if our goal is entertainment, you know, if we don't have very strict guidelines around it, and we're not considerate of why we're consuming, we can get into a lot of trouble, especially because the human perceptual system through reinforcement can create belief patterns that are very difficult to undo. So it's, it's, you know, if you eat Halloween candy every single day, you're going to lose weight. The analogous situation with consuming bad information is you're going to entrain yourself, which is a fancy word for brainwash into belief patterns that may or may not serve you. There's a reason why cults or religious or civil rituals are repeated. And that is very similar to what's going on when you're consuming media. And so like, just like, hey, I want to be entertained without a specific goal can be very problematic. Okay, so let's talk about specifics, right? So you're presented with a whole shit ton of information. You got to figure out what's actually worth your time and effort that's beyond just entertainment and something that can be additive towards your life. It's hard for people to be disciplined when it comes to losing weight. It's probably going to be, I would argue, harder to be disciplined when it comes to filtering noise. So what technique did you learn about that you have employed for yourself that helped you to be very laser focused on what actually matters? Yeah, so my undergraduate work was in cognitive psychology. And basically, I'll summarize all of psychological research of the last 100 years. You're not going to get better at decision making, right? There's no, there's no diet that you can go on that's going to make you better at decision making. And you can read Dweck, you can read, you know, even Annie Duke has that book, Thinking in Bets. There's basically nothing you can do point of decision, right? And this is like 
you cannot be disciplined to have a diet. So what you have to do is actually go upstream and change the environment that you're in in the first place. So for example, if you want to lose weight, a lot of people will not put donuts in their kitchen, right? Like the, the, the analogy that we're dealing with is, you know, you go on Twitter, you go on YouTube. It's like going into your kitchen and saying, I want to lose weight. And on the kitchen counter, there's a bunch of bowls of Halloween candy and donuts and pizza, which for most people is preferable to, you know, eating whole macronutrient foods and all the things that you're going to want to do. And so if you want to have better decisions that are made, um, you actually need to work on the environment and cleaning it up in order to do that. And so on Twitter, since we're here, this looks like being very critical of why am I following all the people that I'm following? It's a pretty common pattern of people following just anyone who's interesting and now they're forever in their information environment. That's not going to serve you very well. Right. So I think for number one is being very critical of who it is that you're following and why. And actually, like a lot of people that come to me and say, you know, Michael, I believe in these insane conspiracy theories. Help me. First thing we do is look at all of the people they're following and they have to write out a sentence. Why am I following this person? And why is it helpful for me to follow them? And what you find 90% of the time is that you don't know why you're following them. You don't know why it's helpful other than sort of like, I think they're funny. And so by cutting, you can actually just start cutting these people out and already you'll have better outcomes. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, although it's, uh, yeah, the algorithm will probably still show them, show you them on the home screen. <laughs> it's kind of the, the challenge there in terms of outrunning what's being recommended. But uh, I don't disagree with you, right? I mean, if people, I, I'm doing purposely in terms of the number of people I'm following because I'm trying to limit who responds to my own tweets. But the, uh, you are right. There's a lot of people that follow others not realizing that it's probably a negative to their own time management and their own mental health in the way that things are framed. How much of how much of this is just kind of confirmation bias when it comes to information overload, right? People want to see information and data that confirms their existing view. So they'll follow people that typically are like that. The retweets come from people that are agreeing with the tweet, not disagreeing with it, right? So is a lot of this just, just behavioral that we're kind of doing it to ourselves? Yeah, I think there's... So on a first-order approximation, yes. But the question is really why? Like you want to fix that. You want to understand why that's happening. And it's because we have evolved the way that we think in an environment of information scarcity. And then we try and deploy those strategies in an environment of information abundance, which makes us overwhelmed. And when we're overwhelmed, we fall back on things that are resonant to us or vibe-based. Like we don't have the ability to evaluate the thousands and thousands of arguments that are coming at us in a sort of analytical way. And so what we do is we cheat 
and we look for signals of tribal affiliation. And if the right signals of tribal affiliation, and that can be, you know, laser eyes on your profile picture, it could be specific words or icons in your bio, or it could be specific jargon, which is like specific language that you use to signal in-groupness. And because we are overwhelmed, we search out this in-groupness. And then to your point, it may or may not serve us because we're not actually thinking critically about the in-group signal that is being given. That's why the United States, for example, is more polarized today than it has been ever. And it is. It's not, you know, like there was a lot of polarization in the media, you know, in the 1850s leading up to the Civil War. And so you can look at that and be like, ah, that's an example of another polarized time. And to an extent, there's always been a lot of polarization, but it is stronger today as a result of the internet than it has ever been, which sort of gets into, you know, why is this happening and what actually is happening and, you know, which are all interesting conversations, but not specifically, you know, well, what do I need to do from an information environment perspective to get better outcomes and to sort of regain my focus? Are there like little steps, like behavioral changes that you find tend to be much better at kind of managing the noise? So for example, it's something as simple as turning off your push notifications, right, from a news app. I have to imagine this probably a big step, although a small one, but big in, in impact. But what are some of the things that people can do day to day to try to help them refocus? Yeah, so it's just like, you know, when you walk into a gym the first time, you don't say, I'm a weightlifter, right? You have to go in and do workouts for a couple of years and then eventually that becomes your identity. And to your point, you know, if you want to have a clean information environment, you're not going to be able to go in and just hack and burn one time, exhaust yourself and then, you know, be done. There's there's small things that you need to do to your point. So it really depends on what your goals are. So for example, I don't need to respond to information very quickly. And so I can turn off notifications. And I do for all of my apps. There are other people who are in situations where because of work or whatever, they need to respond quickly. And so they're not able to do that. And so again, we, we go back to you know first principles, which is what is it that I am trying to accomplish? And how can I do that? So for example, I had a young, I had a woman, middle-aged. She came to me. She has an Etsy store. She was really interested in politics of a state that she didn't live in. And I asked her, I said, well, well, how is this information serving you? Oh, well, it's not. I was like, well, you're just getting stressed out and you're not, you know, focused on your store, which is the thing that you're using to make money and, you know, do all of the other things that you want to do, like travel and spend time with your kids and yada, yada, yada. And I think just being aware of the fact that that wasn't serving her goal, which was to be with her kids and make more money from her store and linking that to I'm consuming, you know, political information about a race that doesn't affect me in any way, doesn't change anything about me. That was really helpful for her. And she was able to stop consuming that entire class of information. She was able to unfollow those people. And yeah, it's, you know, maybe you feel like you don't know what's going on in something that's not relevant. But now all of a sudden, it's just like weeding a garden. You make space for the plants that you want to grow to grow. And it just comes down to taking that kind of approach little by little with every single thing. So I think the first thing is don't use the phone 15 minutes before you go to sleep for a week. 
And then try to do that for an hour every night before you go to sleep. You know, you should be able to sit quietly on the floor without thinking of anything for about an hour. Nobody can do that, right? Like, I think I can make it for 40 minutes. So that's like a, that's like a meditation exercise. So there you go. That's like a, a whole life thing. I think if you try to do this, you try to sit down and clear your mind and sit on the ground. You can't make it five minutes, probably verging on psychotic, right? And I think this is like, you can do these assessments and you can identify, okay, like I'm really in a bad way. But yeah, that's, those are some examples. Turn off notifications, you know, work on not using phones before bed, right? Like I have an entire, I think 200 and something interventions that I help people with. But yeah, like those are some of the good ones, right? Right off the way that are, that are fairly easy to implement. I also, you know, delete like TikTok as for, as an example. I don't find that to be very helpful. You're saying that talk is noisy? Is that, it's, is that well, which I agree with. But yeah, so I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty technical. So I'm, I'm aware of a lot of what TikTok is in terms of its function and the way that it's set up. And I would say that it is not set up in a, in a positive manner. Like I don't, there, there's a lot of like, oh, well, we can do like e-commerce through TikTok. Basically, the format is to get you into a vegetative state where you're very suggestible. And then that is like where you're, where you're at. Like it, it, is, it is rotting your brain if, you're, if your goal in life is to be productive. Right? It's like hypnotic, yeah. it's repeated. There are these small dopamine loops. You're not really aware of what's going on. It's kind of like CNN for a long time. I know nobody watches CNN in, in real life, but the format of their stories is negative story, negative story, negative story, positive story, commercial break. Negative story, negative story, negative story, positive story, commercial break, right? So basically priming you to have an emotional response to their advertisers. It's, straight, it's called entrainment, right? Like it's straight up, a kind of hypnosis that you can do with media. And TikTok is sort of the end state of that, in my opinion, for short form video. And obviously, like to Instagram has copied this with reels. Like you will literally sit down and start watching reels and 45 minutes will go by and you will feel tired, you will feel worse, and you will not have noticed that 45 minutes has gone by. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, it's, I have to assume that sometimes the simplest answer is the right one, which is one thing that people can do is actually spend more time outdoors instead of indoors because you're more likely to get inundated by noise in a confined space. Totally, right? I think one of the things that I think is really important that I teach is the physical location of your body affects the information that you are consuming. Not just the physical shape of it. So obviously, if you're taking a meeting standing, you're going to have a different result than if you're taking a meeting sitting down. But also to your point, the kinds of thoughts that you're going to have walking around in nature 
are different from the kinds of thoughts that you're going to have sitting at your kitchen table. And when you think about, you know, again, what is your goal? I think that 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 cultivating boredom, right, where you're walking in nature, trying to just be present is very helpful in terms of getting you access to more focus. Right. In an age of abundance, the strategies that we have to use in order to be productive are fundamentally strategies about managing abundance, which is turning things off, right? Saying no to opportunity. And our species has spent its entire evolutionary history in an environment, both physical and information, where there was scarcity. And so all of the cognitive biases that you mentioned earlier, they're all primed towards scarcity, right? So there's fear of missing out. There's you know, there's just, there's like something like 70 or something cognitive biases. So yeah, that you, you get, you gotta, it's, it's not easy. Certainly not. It's also not that hard. Well, it's not that hard in principle to remove things until you start getting that itch. And then, you know, your friends end up talking about something which, you know, you can't add much to. I mean, I, I it's funny, right? Like with so much information, there's so many vectors for small talk conversation but then you never actually end up having anything thoughtful or deep. I mean, I see this with, with friends and colleagues all the time. And you always feel like you have to keep up with news because otherwise, how are you going to connect with this person that you're talking to for a business meeting? Yeah, exactly. I think what's really interesting about that is when information was scarce, there was a natural bottleneck. And so we were able to have a consensus-based culture where you could have a water cooler conversation on a Thursday and everyone knew what you were talking about when you were talking about, you know, the show from the previous night. Today, it's to the point where if my wife and I both watch Netflix, we get presented different material on Netflix. And so we have no idea the kinds of shows that the other person is watching. And, you know, multiply that out by all the other people that we come into contact with. There is no shared culture, right? So there's this sort of atomization that goes on when everybody has sort of the perfect thing for them. And you could think of this like, oh, we're all placed in the filter bubbles. And at the same time, if anything really significant happens, we all know about it anyway. So we have this very weird situation where uh, we're completely atomized. So we feel like there's nothing universal that we can talk about unless it's sort of these things that people tell us that we should talk about. And at the same time, we all kind of know like what's going on, right? If I ask people what's the biggest story in the world in 2020, they all know the answer. I ask people what the two biggest stories in 2020 are in the world. They all know the answer. And just knowing the two biggest stories in the world in 2020 accounts for something like 80 or 90% of the effect of, of a particular story on your life. A, a, good, a good example that I use for this is Bitcoin. I've been in alternative currency, crypto places, however you want to call that, my whole life. And I first came across Bitcoin in 2009. And if you were to ask what the top story was among the set of people that I knew who were talking about alternative currencies, in every single year, it was Bitcoin 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013. I actually didn't need to know anything about Bitcoin at all in order to know, just, just know that that's the number one thing that everyone's talking about. It's like, just buy that and hold and that's it. And it's still the number one thing that all the people that are uh, in this environment are talking about. Like, you don't even need to have very deep technical expertise to get the majority of the value. And I think that is like really fascinating because people 
want to argue the specifics, but like the specifics don't matter. What matters is sort of sampling the number of people that are talking about a subject. Sorry, we went from like a one-on-one, one-on-one conversation to a 401 conversation. So yeah, exactly. I have helped a lot of hedge fund guys make a lot of money, like a lot, a lot of money, like a lot more money than anyone on this call will ever have in 10 lifetimes. And one of the things that I've noticed is that I'm very bad at making money through investing. And it's not because I don't have a really good thesis. It's because I trade too much. Like to your point, like there's information. And so I think that I have to respond to it. And so what I have actually done is told myself that I only get 30 more trades for the rest of my life and act accordingly. And since I've made that choice, the returns in my portfolio have been absolutely astronomical comparative to what they were before. And so I think, I think what you're saying is, is very correct, which is basically that because we have this fear of missing out and we over-rotate on emotional information, we tend to make decisions that are not super helpful for us in, when we consider our long-term goals. So totally agree. So, so Michael, I appreciate that, Michael. You, you kind of alluded to this idea before of, you know, how do we get to this place? Uh, I'm going to make the assumption that things can only go get worse from here because especially with AI, there's going to be even more information overload from people just putting a question into the new Ask Jeeves, chat GPT, and getting an answer. How do we as a society reverse some of this? What a throwback. What a throwback. Yeah, it is. Actually, I, I love it. I was, I, I'm amazed they didn't use that term for chat GPT because that's really what it, people are using it. I love it. Well, it's the thing is, is that the number of people that use Ask Jeeves that is still alive today is like five people. Yeah, I, I just so that everybody who is here in case the space crashes, it's not getting worse. It's just a trade-off. So that's, that's really important to understand. The, the world, the information environment is not getting worse. It's just different. And so the strategies that we have to employ to be effective are different. In the past, under information scarcity, we used consensus-based strategies, which is that we're all going to get in a room, we're going to vote on something, and then we're going to agree on it. And as a group, we're going to go together. That's not possible anymore for a variety of reasons, which we don't need to get into. But it, it is not how people will make decisions in the future and how they make decisions on the in the in the present, right? We have moved collectively to a resonance-based way of decision-making where I make a decision and then chaos decides that he agrees or disagrees with me. And so he stands next to me and makes the same decision. And then Josh and then Michael decides he agrees or disagrees. And if he agrees, he stands next to me. And so now we have three people who are in resonance together making a decision. But we do not as a group collectively decide, oh, we're going to do this by using a market mechanism like voting. And the way that you know what I'm saying is correct is because under a scarce information environment where consensus rules how we make decisions, the nature of the conversation takes the form of what is the best way to go from A to B. Right In the US, you could say there's some people that believe in big government and there's some people that believe in small government. That is fundamentally a discussion about the best way to go from A to B. We all agree that B is more freedom, more money, more power for everyone. That's not a disagreement. 
And A is just where we are today. And we're and then the conversation is should the government be the one that helps make things better, or should the government not be the one that makes that helps make things better? That is a consensus-based decision-making framework. In a resonance-based decision-making framework, we don't agree on what is A. There is no institutional consensus in the United States on the definition of a woman. It is one of the most fundamental things. You and I can agree, every person in this room can agree on what a woman is. But institutionally, as a society, we are unable to agree. And it's not just what a woman. It's does, what does it mean to die with COVID or from COVID? We just went through this for three years. That, that was never defined. So we have all these policy implications and we don't even have consensus on what the definitions are to implement those policy implications. And it was total chaos. And we will never agree on what is A in a world where the internet exists. So when people say, oh, we need to go back to how we made decisions before, what they're saying is we need to uninvent technology that's uninventable. And because we can't do that, we can only move forward which is to say that in the rest of your life, there are going to be people who have definitions of reality that are radically at odds with yours, and you're not going to be able to get them to agree. And so you're going to have to just accept that that's part of the environment and move forward. And the sooner that you accept this, that people are never going to agree with you on the definition of what A is, whether it's the definition of a woman, whether it's the definition of what is infant mortality, GDP, unemployment, like on and on and on and on. These definitions will never get agreed upon. You have to move forward in a world where it's just, okay, you know, some people believe the exact opposite of what I believe. I can't move forward with them, but I can move forward with people that agree with me. And the extent to which your version of describing reality actually describes reality is the extent to which you will be successful. Right. And, and this is, this is a sort of a macro network level response to a micro reality. And if you want a metaphor, it's like we have a big battleship and the captain of the ship gets all the soldiers to coordinate in a hierarchical function in order to turn the ship. That's consensus. We don't exist in a consensus based reality anymore because of the internet. We are more like a school of fish going through the ocean. Millions of us all together aware of both the global context and the local. But we don't wait for one fish two kilometers away to decide which direction the school should go in. We all just go. And as a result of emergence, we go together. There is a broad amount of human history. The challenge is that the internet has never existed before 50 years ago. And it is the internet which has reduced. So this is kind of the technical point, but I'll say it. The reason why the emergent phenomena of how we make decisions or come to an understanding of reality has shifted from consensus to resonance is because the cost of information distribution has gone from some cost to no cost functionally. So for example, Throughout all of human history, if I had an empire or a society and I wanted to communicate a message to every person in that society, there would be some cost to communicating that message. I'd have to tell a messenger. They'd have to physically go and tell everybody. There would be loss in that message. 
Then we invented writing. And so I could write it on a wall and everybody would have to walk by. But some people would be in the field, so they wouldn't walk by and they wouldn't get that wall, that message. Then we invented newspapers, but newspapers still have capital outlays like printing presses and distribution networks. And so there is always, there has always been, because of scarce capital constraints on information distribution, a push towards consensus decision-making because it was not possible to present all of the information to everyone at the same time. The internet has reduced the cost of the leader of a society or anyone for that matter, distributing information to nothing. And so at a macro, macro, macro level, the highest level, what we are seeing is a shift in power from the second estate to the third estate. And the last time that we saw a shift in power from one of the estates to the other was from the first estate to the second estate. It happened because of the printing press. We then had 400 years of war and the Westphalian nation-state system emerged, right? So we went from the king slash God, which is the church being the leader of society to an electable or you know group of aristocrats, so rich people controlling corporations running society. And now we are moving from the second estate, which again is, is the nobles, to the third estate, which is us, the commoners. And it, it is a transition that we have not seen before and we are currently unprepared to deal with. In terms of people that are already making this decision, the most evolutionary pressure in our society is currently placed on large international terrorist networks. So if we look at the way that ISIS or Antifa communicates and the way that they are structurally organized, they are not pyramidal, they are not hierarchical, they are much more decentralized, cell-based. That is in fact how consensus, or excuse me, emergence will work in the future. And what you will come to understand, having an understanding of, and again, I don't think anyone is going to actually research these topics, and I don't necessarily think it's a particularly good idea, but we're talking about fourth generation, fifth generation warfare, where there is no difference between a civilian and a combatant, which means that the theater of engagement is not the battlefield. It is also the mind. And that is part of the information environment now. There's a whole bunch of technical reasons. If you look at the OODA loop for all of human history, again, we've been stuck in observation, which is why we have secrets, which is why we have intelligence community, assets, all of these kind of things. We have actually shifted from observation as being the bottleneck to orientation. So observe, orient, decide, act. Orientation is fundamentally about asking, you know, where am I? Where do I want to go? What's happening? That is why the economics of warfare in the battle space that is the information environment have pushed towards misinformation and disinformation because it is not possible to censor the truth anymore. Okay, when the Iranians shot down the civilian aircraft in January 2020 of the people that gave the United States the location of General Soleimani, the names of the defectors were known on the internet within hours. That is not something that has ever happened before, ever. And it goes on and on and on and on. January 20th, 2020. There was information on the internet about the Wuhan Institute of Virology, about the researchers, about the 
people who were funded by the United States. That information was there. It was distributed. People knew about it. And yet, three years passed before it's even reached, let's say, 2% of the information environment. But that information was available from day one. There are no more secrets because it doesn't cost anything to distribute a secret, which then changes what you need to do to be effective, right? And so like the militaries of the world, they have to operate in this theater because like your soldiers can be deprogrammed or psyoped while they're in, you know, while they're reading WhatsApp on their phones in in theater, right? Like it's just, it's absolutely insane. And the, the evolutionary pressure is, is something we haven't seen before. And so like what, where you will find the model is from these really extreme organizations because it's always the organizations at the frontier which are forced to innovate the fastest. And then I'll say one more thing, which is if you read the Bible as a compendium of knowledge from our ancestors, if you look at the Exodus as an idea, the Jews leave Egypt and they move to the promised land. In theory, it takes five days to walk from Cairo to Jerusalem. And yet, God banishes the Jews to wander in the desert for 40 years, which is the length of time of two generations, which suggests in the Bible already for thousands of years that we know that these transitions take at least two generations. Why two generations? Because the people that are alive have to actually die before the change can happen. Everybody who's alive right now, who grew up before 2000, right, who was awake or born before then, they are fundamentally programmed to think of the world in terms of scarcity. The Gen Alpha kids, like my kids, who live in this information-abundant world, they are already making fundamentally different decisions and their brain is already fundamentally different wired because of this information environment. And so the kids will be all right. The challenge is just for everybody living right now who is operating in their mind on a, on a scarcity system, like programming operating system, in an abundant environment. Like that is fundamentally the, the core challenge. And it's just that we have to wait it out and navigate a challenge, right? Like there's still people that believe it was really amazing. I talked, I talked to capital allocators early 2020 and they said to me, you know, guys that run, let's say tens of billions of dollars, they're like, we never in the world imagined that the CEC would not be at the forefront of our sense making about reality, that we would have to filter the conversation, the information that was coming from the CDC because it was like straight up false. And that's crazy, right? And like, so. Again, you want to look at what, what are the capital allocators doing and what are these extremist networks at the frontier doing? And they're all doing the same thing, which is decentralization, horizontal structures. If you want to read like a treatise on this, there's a guy who wrote a book called Reinventing Organizations. He's French, so he talks way too much. There's like a children's illustrated guide. You should watch that. And it explains sort of how decentralized decision-making can happen at scale for common goals. But you also need to recognize personally that this change is going to take two generations at least. And I think, I think the start of the change is probably 2009, where cell phones became cheap enough 
that everybody could have one, right? And the big, the big thing was when Michael Jackson died, you know, it used to be that if some famous person like that died, I'd have to go buy like Rolling Stone magazine to read it. But like everybody in the world knew that he died instantly. And I think that also sort of highlighted something that was kind of nuts, which is the more valuable a piece of information is in our world today, the less expensive it is to get to every single person in the world, which is completely different from before. It used to be like, if I had really specific information, I have to travel to the library and then they didn't have it, I have to travel to another library and then they didn't have it, I have to go to the Library of Congress. And so whatever that information was by definition of how much energy I had to put in to get it had to be super expensive. Today, it's the opposite, right? Which is the more important a piece of information is, the cheaper it is to distribute to everybody, which has a fundamentally profound impact on the way that we make decisions as a society. Anyway, that was like a lot of technical shit to basically say like, you need to be intentional about the information that you're consuming. You need to be asking yourself, is consuming this helping me to get closer or further away from whatever my proximate goal is? And if you can do that, you will be better than 99% of people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with people. I think I like, I, this is my side project, but it's going to be like something I have to do for the rest of my life. Because as I mentioned, we as a group don't change, right? They, the, the joke is science advances one death at a time. Well, it's kind of like all of society is sort of the same way. Like nuclear energy, right? We're going to deploy nuclear energy as the base load for all power in the entire world in like t- starting in 2035. And it has nothing to do with technology. It has nothing to do with environmental danger. It has entirely everything to do with politics and demographics. And that's just like really difficult. But like, you know, give it, 13 years, and then we'll be building tons of nuclear power plants. It's just so crazy. Mike, how how strong is the link between uh, physical health and well-being and filtering information and noise, right? I mean, it, 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 discipline is like a lot of that is all sides that show this, that it gets exhausted. So if somebody has a lot of big decisions to make, which requires a lot of discipline to execute on, by the end of the day, they call comfort food for a reason. They pick out, right? And then suddenly... All that, all the hard work on trying to be healthy goes away. But I got to assume that, you know, it's kind of the old adage, sound mind, sound body is a big part of this too. Absolutely. And a huge part, what I'm about to release a detox course. It's funny, it's like a one day course, but there's a 60 page workbook. And a huge portion of it is, and it's not very expensive. My goal is to try and get it to as many people as possible. The point is, is that you have to get your body in a good, in a good way, right? Like, if you are addicted to sugar and pre-diabetic or diabetic, overweight, all of these things, it is going to be very difficult for you to make good decisions because you're not able to rely on your gut intuition and all of these things. Human beings are embodied. And what that means is we have a physical body and we have to be concerned with and aware of that physical body if we are going to make good decisions and have good outcomes in our lives. And the point is, that 80 to 90% of the reality that we experience is downstream of social construction, which means that at any given point, like money has no real value, except that we all agree it has value and therefore it has value. 80 to 90% of our reality is like that. And so that means that, you know, if we want to have a good physical health, we have to have a good mental health. And if we want to have a good mental health, then we have to have a good physical health. 
because they're interlinked. Like our experience of reality is rooted in our biology and we can't transcend that, right? Despite what people want to do, like they want to spend all their time in a pod, you know, the Apple AR glasses, VR glasses, like make no mistake, everyone will have a pair in 20 years or some other technology that's even more invasive. And that's a, that's a function of cost. But nevertheless, like we want to do that, but we will never be able to get away from our, our bodies. And our bodies need things like physical nourishment, emotional nourishment, mental nourishment, and spiritual nourishment. And th- those are sort of four areas that you need to attack if you want to live a, live a better life. And again, like this is not like, hey, we're going to stop eating Halloween candy by never eating, right? So that's like the fast strategy, which is a very extreme strategy. You know, that, that's a, what a lot of people say about information. Oh, I'm not going to use Twitter and I'm not going to use email. and I'm not going to use my phone ever. And therefore, I'm going to be able to live a healthy life. It's like, no, that's not what's going to happen. You're going to have to learn how to shop in the, in the supermarket and not buy those things, right? And it's hard. Trust me, I want to get the... For, for me, it's not Halloween candy. I like certain kinds of beer and all this kind of thing. And obviously, it's bad for me, but you want to do it anyway. So... Michael, for those that want to track more of your thoughts or maybe get more structure from you, aside from Twitter, are there other places you point to? No, I think the the challenge is there's not that many people who are looking at this. Again, I'm a millennial, so there's a generational component to this as well because it, because sense making, which is the sort of uber macro concept, is rooted in sort of how you grew up. So for people who are in the boomer generation. There's a guy called John Robb. He's he, the way that he formulates everything is much more on the consensus side. And so that is very helpful. You can follow him on Twitter, Global Gorillas. He's a friend of mine. He's a great guy. For Jen, I had John on a Twitter space, by the way. Just halfway. I had not too long. You have to go. No, no, I'm saying I had John on a Twitter space not too long oh, okay, ago. Okay. Yeah. So John, I'm a fan of his John Robb is talking the same stuff, but from the perspective of a boomer. And so that is helpful if that's the environment that you grew up in and you're that age. Jordan Hall is the Gen X guy who talks about the same thing. And Daniel Schmachtenberger, both of those guys are very like at the frontier, very esoteric, kind of difficult to get into, but that's sort of like Gen X's curse in my opinion. And so they're very helpful in helping to frame these issues. So Jordan talks about the blue church and the red wave and all of these kind of concepts and how to move forward through them. And then I am a millennial. And so we are, you know, a little bit more digital native. We understand that we can make decisions over the internet and, you know, are redoing everything. And so I speak mostly to millennials. And then we haven't seen any Gen Z guys come forward with a framework that helps to solve this, but I would anticipate in the next five or so years, we'd see a Gen Z guy as well. So wherever you are in the age demographic is really going to affect, and again, this is from a US-centric position, can't speak to the rest of the world, but you know, John Robb for Boomers, Jordan Hall, Daniel Schmachtenberger for Gen X. I'm working with millennials and we haven't seen anyone for Gen Z yet. And you can follow me on Twitter and that is the best way. And I have like a bunch of products. I used to teach a class, but I was going crazy because... You can't straddle the consensus and resonance information environments for too long because you go nuts. But, and, and that's why, like, if you read The Sovereign Individual, which is sort of one of the first, I would say, late 90s books that sort of started touching on this change, the one guy died and the other person, I think, went insane. 
And so like you really can't straddle these conversations. And so like to save your mental health, you need to just fall back to, okay, what is it? What is my goal? I'm going to consume information that's related to my goal. And I'm not going to think too hard on why all of this is happening and what the implications for society are, because then you kind of lose touch with reality, as most of the people who study this have, unfortunately. So hopefully that was helpful. I know that was kind of crazy, but anyway. I love crazy. Anyway, that's a good place to wrap up the Twitter space. Please, everybody, make sure you follow Michael. I have another Twitter space, one last one, coming up at 5 Eastern, I believe it is. So stay tuned for that. And hopefully, no, I'm sorry, at 4 Eastern. So stay tuned for that. And thank you for joining. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you. Have a great one. Thank you for having me on. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.